Hello, welcome to the Rabbi Study. I'm Rabbi David, and today we're going to be talking about Rosh Hashanah. It is early on the eve of Rosh Hashanah. I intended on recording this a little earlier, and I apologize with all my holiday prep. Things have fallen to the wayside. <clears throat> and for those who don't know, Rosh Hashanah is the calendar new year for the Jews. It is an important period within the Jewish calendar and for Jews. It is considered one of the high holy days, which are the two days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. The first day of Rosh Hashanah is also the first day of what are called the 10 days of repentance. And it comes after the month of Elul, which is a whole month for self-improvement. The idea is to start the new year on a high note, self-improvement, and begin the new year preparing ourselves for the whole rest of the year and hope that our change in behavior and good acts continue over throughout the year. A whole month leading up to it to prepare ourselves, better ourselves, self-reflection, 10 days of repenting for all the sins from the previous year and looking into ourselves on ways to improve it. One of the prayers that we do between now and Yom Kippur is the prayer is what's called the confessional prayer where we tell God that we committed various sins and that we ask God for forgiveness. Uh, maybe at a later stage go through that prayer line by line. However, we need to understand Rosh Hashanah itself is a joyous holiday as opposed to Yom Kippur, which is solemn. The month of Elul is both a joyous and solemn month. In Judaism, we don't view repentance and self-improvement as this scary psalm affair like many other faiths do. Rather, we view it as a natural part of life. Remember, <clears throat> in Judaism, we say there are 613 commandments. That is a lot of commandments to follow. And everyone at some point stumbles. It's almost impossible to be perfect, even the most righteous amongst us will stumble from time to time. It may not be what you stumble on. Sins and, you know, commandments can be everything from the most minor of things that you wouldn't even think of to obviously the major cardinal sins. We view life as always a way to self-improve, a way to move forward. Such as, you sinned today, you failed, you didn't fail. You sinned today, you had a shortcoming, you fell short, you work on it tomorrow. If you do it tomorrow, the purpose is to always be cognizant and aware of our sins and what we do and to move forward. And that is a big part about starting the new year. We come from a month of preparing and waiting for ourselves. As you know, we say, Yohayom HaRasolom, today's the birthday of the world. And then we go into the Day of Atonement ten, day, 10 days from now, and 10 days from Rosh Hashanah, called Yom Kippur, which is to deal with the forgiveness of our sins in the previous year. But all of this is part of it. And Rosh Hashanah is a day of improvement and self-reflection, but it's a joyous because we're also celebrating that we're new year and starting anew. We enter into the new year on a serious note, but it's celebrating. And now there are many, many customs revolving around Rosh Hashanah and the little period leading up to it. 
For example, in the month of Tishrei, there is the custom of to say both the Selichos prayer as well as to blow the shofar. Now, there is a difference between those who follow the Ashkenazic rite and the Sephardic rite. Those who don't know, Ashkenaz and Sephardic are not ethnic differences. Rather, they're actually differences in certain minor aspects of religious rite, minor differences in prayer that evolved in different parts of the Jewish world. It's very minor. Most people assume it's ethnic because these things came in different parts of the world, but it's not. Sephardic Jews say Slichos from the beginning of Elul, onwards, and blow the shofar only the week before Rosh Hashanah, unless Rosh Hashanah starts too early in the week, like this year, in which case you start the week before. So some, so those, some Sephardic congregations actually, even if it's the very beginning, only do that week of Ashkenazim, start blowing the shofar at the beginning of the month, at the end of services in the morning, and do Salichos the week before Rosh Hashanah, and if it starts this early, the week before. The purpose of Salichos is forgiveness prayer, a prayer of, int of introflection and introspection to move forward. The shofar is the blast of the ram's horn. Well, it could be any animal where the horn is separate from the bone structure inside the horn, which could be a ram, there's a couple other species, all within that greater family. Animals such as deer horns do not, are not valid. There's a process of removing the bone from the horn, but we blow it traditionally a ram's horn. The reason why traditionally a ram's horn is because of the incident of the binding of Isaac, where Abraham brings Isaac to the mount, because God commanded him to, and at the end they sacrifice a ram that caught in the thicket, the famous test of Abraham. So we use the ram's horn as a remembrance of that to remind God to have mercy on us, similar to the way there was mercy on Isaac, and that whatever troubles we're facing should be like how it was with, I, with Abraham, just a test and not reality. Now we only blow a few blasts at the end of the morning services, at Tekiah Shavarim Aturua, and at Tekiah Gedolo. Tekiah is one long blast, Shavarim is three mid-blasts, Teruah is nine short blasts, Tekiah is one very long blast. There are several Kabbalistic reasons behind it, but the essential main reason is for us to hear it and to cause us to reflect in on ourselves and to remind us that the Day of Judgment, which is Yom Kippur, is coming, and that the New Year Rosh Hashanah is coming, and we need to prepare over that whole month. On Rosh Hashanah, the shofar is blown 100 times. There are different customs as to how they're blown throughout the prayer service. It's the same number of blasts of each type. It's at what point during the prayer services they are blown. Now, as I mentioned before, one of the things is also about the whole period on also the days between Rosh and Yom Kippur with <coughs> the various special things, which is the whole month before Rosh Hashanah and then 10 days afterwards, which is Yom Kippur. Rosh Chodesh El is the day that Moses went up to Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights to, rec to receive the second tablets. He came that which is after he destroyed the first tablets when he saw the sinning of the golden calf. Moses went back up 
Moses stayed up there for 40 days. He came back down to what would have been Yom Kippur with the new tablets, which was a sign that God had forgiven, which is another part of this whole process and why Yom Kippur is on the day it is. Now, there are many different customs throughout this month. Now, over the period for the Slichos service, uh, we say that just like we have with the Slichos service, and same thing with whoever leads the services on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, to be a to be a man who's a, known as a scholar, a man who's known for his good deeds, a man who's known for being a person of the community, someone who gives in the community. There's a lot of importance in selecting because this is the person both for the Slichos prayers before and the prayers on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur who are representing the community. Uh, the cantor, the chazan, is the, is the one who leads the services. Everyone prays along with him. It's a communal thing, but he is the one who leads the congregation. And because of that, you need someone who's going to represent. And therefore, at least there's a custom to be extremely discriminating in who you pick based on all those things. Many congregations just pick someone on based on how good their voice is, though there are many congregations, such as the one I pray at, that looks for someone who's both known for their good deeds and a great person and a good in the community who also has a great voice. Also, the person who pulls the chauffeur should also be a God-fearing person who is well-knowledgeable in, in Judaism and in his faith. However, if, if you don't have someone like that, anyone who knows how to properly blow, who is a Jew, can perform it. And at a congregation, if you don't have anyone who meets the proper qualities, then anyone can do it. You should just make sure that it meets the proper standards. Now, when we come to Rosh Hashanah, on the eve of Rosh Hashanah, there is a custom that for men to go to the mikvah to immerse. Most congregations have this custom. The idea is, is the mikvah, which is a ritual bath. You go in, there are different customs, how many times you dunk. The most common is three times under the water. And it's a symbolic act of cleansing. It is not literally what cleanses you of your sins. In Judaism, we do many things that are symbolic acts. These are not things that literally do things. It's symbolic. And therefore, through the act of doing these symbolic acts, it purifies us. Now, there are things that are required for a mikvah particularly with a man who's a scribe uh, before he, any day that he's planning on doing, an doing the name of God, he's required. A uh, man who's become impure for certain things, a woman who's become impure for certain things, they go to the mikvah. Impurities, by doing the act, it's not the act, it's, it's not the actual mikvah itself, but it's the act of going to the mikvah and following the procedures that shows to God that you've done it and it brings cleansing. There is a physical act because the mikvah has to be a certain size, has to be made in a certain way, has a certain amount of water. There is an element of the physical act, but it is not the physical act that does it. It is rather the reason why you do it in combination. It's a very complex topic to explain. I could go deeper at a later on into the theology behind the action involved. Just thinking about doing it doesn't do it. The act is connected 
to it. The water itself isn't magical that erases the impurity. It's the act of going into the water with the intention of doing it for this reason that causes it to happen. I'll go later at a different point into these theological type issues. Now, there's another custom that some do on the eve of Rosh Hashanah and some do on the eve of Yom Kippur. It's called Ataras Nadarim, or the removal of the vows. Now, this has a lot of misunderstandings. It is an act, Sarani, where we go through a prayer, where we say some prayers that remove certain vows from in front of us. Now, these vows, the annulments thing, you have three people you can sit in front of who have to be God-fearing Jews, who keep Shabbos, who keep kosher, and you go in front of them, and you say, and it says, listen, you know, it says this, and then, it, but, you know, and then you say, every vow, oath, prohibition, restriction I adopt by the use of the term of konam, or the term cherem, that I vowed or swore while I was awake in a dream, or that I swore by means of God's holy name, it is forbidden to erase or by means of the name of God, blessed is he, or any form of Nazarism that I accept upon myself, except the Nazarism of Samson, or any prohibition, even a prohibition to derive enjoyment that I posed upon myself, etc., etc., etc. It's a long prayer. It's a long thing. It does not apply to any oath one makes between themselves and their fellow man. It's a common myth when people hear, oh, you and no vows. No, no. It's a value made about yourself that's between you and God. Example, it says, to derive enjoyment. Say someone says, I'm not going to eat a certain food ever again because, you know, and they realize they regret it. This is a way of removing that vow. Now, there are a lot of things here that it's under specifically the ones that follow certain terms, and it's repeated several out, and there's a whole list of oaths, even to God, that are not annulled. It's a very, very narrow range. But what it does is it creates the right situation that allows us to understand and get forget and get forgiven, because it's an opportunity to start anew, and God is, you know, says that I'm going to create this procedure that for certain types of vows and promises to you about yourself, you and God, you can get annulled on the vow. As the as one of the parts says, now behold, according to the law, one who regrets and seeks annulments must specify the vow, but please be informed that it is impossible to specify them because they are many, nor do I seek annulment of those vows that cannot be annulled. And therefore may you consider as if I specify them, the three people say, May everything be permitted to you, may everything be forgiven, may everything be allowed. It when it says this, and then it says there does not extend a list of different types of prohibitions, you know, meaning that any, I mean, that those things that you had prohibited to yourself, those things that you had, if you had violated it, that you know this is your forgiveness on it. And, it's, and then it mentions that, but there does exist pardon, forgiveness, and atonement. Just as the heavenly court permits them, so may they be permitted, earthly court permits them, so may they be permitted in the heavenly court. It's, and then the person makes a, you know, takes it after that, the formal declaration. And it's the annulment. It's a very, very, very narrow range. Now, on Rosh Hashanah, there are many, many other customs. And it's too numerous because there's each little regional sub-customs, but there are some big general ones, and I'm going to focus on some of the more common ones. 
one, it's a very long prayer service, so you have that. But there is, and I'm not going to go right now into the whole prayer service. It's too lengthy, maybe some other time in the future. However, there is a custom many have that during certain parts of the prayer services to have their heads slightly bowed in a humble manner to show humility before God when asking for forgiveness on these many things. And there are many parts in the prayer service that we add in on Rosh Hashanah and we continue through through the next set of days through Yom Kippur, which includes certain parts of the in the prayer, such as you know, such as uh, in the prayer Mikmoka Avharachman Zochar Yitzura Lachayim Barachamim, which is in the Shmon Esrei, which is who is like you, merciful Father, who recalls this creature for merciful life. Commonly throughout Jewish prayer, God is called Father in Heaven, our Father. It's quite common. There's a whole bunch of prayers like these, like the Sefer Chaim Baruch Shalom Parnasot Tova Yizachayr V'nichaseh Lefanecha Anachu Kamucha Beis Yisrael Chaim Tovim Shalom In the of life, blessing and peace and good livelihood, may we be remembered and inscribed before you and your entire people of the family of Israel for good life and peace. Throughout our prayer services, there's a lot about reminding God about redeeming and forgiveness and a lot of prayers about peace. They're specific in the Rosh Hashanah services. It's a very important theme. You know, there's now uh, it's customary after services on the first night to say Lishana Tova Tichasev which may be inscribed, you know, for the new year. For a woman, you would say Tichasevi which is the feminine version. Because Hebrew's language which has masculine and feminine, like most languages, unlike English. Now at the meal on Rosh Hashanah night, it's quite customary people not to do the normal types of braided breads. Braided breads are deeply rooted within Jewish mysticism, what we call chalas of Europe. Some comes from Europe, but different parts of throughout the different world, different types of braided breads were used for Shabbos and Yom Tov because of their connections to Jewish mysticism. Which is a tradition on Rosh Hashanah to use round. The loaves have lots of round foods because the circle has no end. So it's supposed to be, and you know, circle is for good fortune because there's no start and no end. So if it's good blessing, it never stops, never ends. It's also a big thing that life is like a wheel. One time you can be on top, then on the bottom, but it can rotate and you'll be back on top again. So some people do a braided circle, some people just do a regular circle. Now, the evening meal, you, we dip challah in honey. That is a very, very ancient, going back to the days of the Second Temple, well, at least, possibly earlier. Honey is sweet, and you put the bread that you make on the hamotzi on at the, like any Jewish holiday or Sabbath, Shabbos. You start off where you make the blessing on the wine or grape juice, followed by you wash your hands, and then you have the blessing on the bread, the challah, and then you go into the meal. So to do honey, because honey is sweet, and it's symbolic to have a sweet year. Then there's, and then during the meal, there is, shortly after that, there is a custom of Rosh Hashanah to dip a piece of apple in the honey. And you say, by, by these things, you say, Yehi Ratzon Shalachadeh Shaleinu Shana Tovah Masuka, 
which is may be or will to be renewed for good and sweet here. And you do this by each of the symbolic act things that we do at the meal, whether it's the dip in the holland, the honey, the apple into the honey, we get some other stuff later. Apple in the honey, there's a common myth out there I've seen published in articles in prominent newspapers trying to say it originated in medieval Germany. That's 100% false. It's oldest known wreck. They cite a certain, because they're all based off a certain scholar who cited a Jewish writing from medieval Germany. The actual oldest writing about it talking is the Abutraham who lived in Almohad, Spain. We're talking about, oh, quite a while before that German author was born, the Jewish author in Germany was even born. And he actually describes the custom of having originated somewhere in North Africa, in the Almohad, North Africa. So we're talking about most likely somewhere from the Moroccan coastline, the apple and the honey. But by the 1300s, it was basically universal throughout the Jewish world, the 1300s. Now, amongst the various symbolic things, there's cousins to eat either the head of a sheep, or which is eat a head of an animal, the head of animals that are considered positive, because you want to say that it should be like the head, and the head is sort of blessing. So, head of a royal lamb or a ram, to remember the ram of Isaac. There's also the dab of fish, because fish is considered a blessing for family for a prosperous family, as well as we say that the evil eye and evil and evil curses have no connection to the fish, and that there can, can have no effect on a fish, and therefore you want to have you say like we should not have that kind of protection like a fish, it's symbolic act. <clears throat> then there is also that use that we eat vegetables that could be play on words for things that are positive. And there's an ancient custom that you should create new ones based on the language of the land you're in. Classical Jewish ones such as carrots, because merin in Yiddish is carrots and merin means increase. So for Ashkenazim, that's popular. You know, uh, in many parts of the world, particularly the Sephardic world, they eat fish as a, as a symbolic act because fish is a symbol of fertility in large families. And there are various different things. There are people today who eat uh, the long beans because, you know, to have a long life, you know, because it's long, and there's lots of new stuff that come along, and it's fine. Now on Rosh Hashanah Day, we mentioned there about the chauffeur blast and the prayer service, and I really wish I had time to do multiple recordings in the week leading up to this, so I could have given you the beauty of the prayer service and all of that. And there's so much more here I wish I could go into. However, in the afternoon, so usually on afternoon, it's a custom to go to a river or a stream to do what's called the Tashlich, where we say the Tashlich prayer. And the custom is to shake the corners of your garment to say that as if to be symbolically shaking off our sins. There is a custom in some parts of the world that's become more popular to take bread and throw into the water, the symbolic act of throwing our sins away, and that fish will eat the bread because fish are, as we mentioned earlier, the power of sin and evil eye has no power over fish in Jewish uh, mysticism, which is where that comes from, Jewish mysticism. Now as to a river, as it says in Psalm 69.2, Deliver me, O God, for the waters have reached unto my soul. You know, that's part of it. 
Also, in ancient times, they would proclaim the kingship by bringing the king to anoint him by a river. So that to say that their kingdom should flow like a river without end. So, since this is, you know, the birthday of the world, the day God created it, it's symbolic that, you know, God's, it's a remembrance of God's coronation, you know, metaphorically speaking. There are other reasons for the river that are brought down in various Jewish writings. It should contain fish, it should be natural. If not, there are other ways that you should do it. That's where the whole thing there, the way you should have fish. But say the fish in Jewish mysticism are also consider, are also supposed to be symbolic of the all-seeing eye of God because fish's eyes never close. You know, and there's a lot of symbology about fish within Jewish mysticism. There's an old custom that people shouldn't nap or sleep on Rosh Hashanah afternoon. Rather, they should engage the day in studying of Torah or praying or reading Psalms. It's quite common for people to spend the whole their spare time after the meals and after Tashluch just reading Psalms. It's a two-day holiday simply because everywhere in the world in ancient times there was usually two days were done for outside the land of Israel and in his land of Israel is one day Rosh Hashanah going back to the time of the second temple was two days I will hopefully record soon about ten days of repentance and more about the holiday of, and more about all of that and get ready for Yom Kippur and hopefully I'll have time to go through the whole entirety of the Yom Kippur prayer service in detail so that you can understand its beauty. I truly wish I had more time to explain about Rosh Hashanah before now. Go through the myriad of customs, which I could have recorded a whole series of 30 minute to one hour long. I'm about to finish up. Remember, a big part of this is to invoke God's mercy and for God to remember us and to remember that today is the birthday of the world. Technically, Rosh Hashanah is the day when Adam was created and the first man. It's technically the sixth day of creation it commemorates, but we consider that the completion as the end of the days of creation. And that therefore it's about starting off the new year with good intentions and hopefully that the improvements that we started during the month prior and the next 10, you know, build up into this big joyous day, followed by 10 days of repentance, followed by the day of atonement. And that we hope that this kind of transition takes us throughout the full year round, all the way back, so that by next year we'll have improved and be better, as mentioned earlier. About Judaism, about constantly improving, understanding that sometimes we sin and stumble, but that we're constantly forgiven going forward, and that God always forgives if one is sincere in their intention for repentance which is showing sincerity of regret of the sin, desire to improve, etc. And uh, be busy the rest of this day working about uh, Rosh Hashanah. Uh, hopefully this thing gets approved to go up uh, before Rosh Hashanah starts. If it doesn't, uh, that's not going to be my ideal situation. But to understand, we have all this approval. And that, that's the importance of Rosh Hashanah into the new year, and to start the new year on point of self-improvement that should carry throughout the rest of the year. Uh, the day after Rosh Hashanah is the fast of, it's called Som Gedalia, the fast of Gedalia, 
which is the incident in the Bible when Gedaliah ben Achikam, who was the governor appointed at the beginning of the Babylonian exile when only the king and the elites were taken into exile, to rule over the people. He was assassinated. He was a righteous and holy man who was trying to protect the Jewish people, and because of his assassination resulted in the full Babylonian exile. So in the day after Rosh Hashanah is Tzom Gedaliah, I'll hopefully have time to record then some more to explain about both that and the 10 days of repentance. And then hopefully after that, I'll be able to go into the Yom Kippur and the Yom Kippur prayer services. Have a happy Rosh Hashanah. Have a great new year. Stay positive.